This is the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may, may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. What is the foundation of Christian obedience? We have been talking about over the last few weeks as we march through chapter 14 in the book of Romans, we have been talking about how to conduct ourselves in a community of people who struggle with differing opinions on certain things. Like, what is the day of the week that's more special than other days of the week? What festivals in the Old Testament are we supposed to keep or not keep? What food is clean to eat and what drink is clean to drink? And Paul has been talking about how all things are clean and how we're to conduct ourselves in light of just differing opinions in the Christian community. We're supposed to be gracious with another, one another, we're supposed to help one another, and we're supposed to be confident of our position, but we're not to cause unnecessary quarreling over things that don't really matter as much. And so today, we're finding the foundation of that. What is the foundation for Christian love toward one another. And the finished work of Christ is the foundation of Christian hope. We know that. We're going to get to hope here in a little bit today. But when we think about future hope, and in light of kind of the season that we're in right now, where there's a lot of people in the world thinking about Christian hope, or thinking about hope, what is there to hope for? And for the Christian, we have everything in the world to hope for. We know that God is sovereignly controlling all things, and whatever the enemy is trying to do with this virus, he is under the parameters and the control of the God of the universe who is using this for his purposes and his good. And I want you to believe that. I don't want that to be just some silly mantra that we think about, well, God's in control. He really is in control. He really is. That's not just a figment of certain people's imaginations. It's the truth of the scriptures, that God is in control just as much right now as he was two weeks ago, three months ago, six months ago. You get the point. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Not just in heaven. He has all authority on earth right now. And that's absolutely true. And that is our hope for the future, is that Jesus has secured for us an eternity with him. That's the foundation of our hope. It's the foundation of our security. The very finished work of Jesus. Now, what we're looking at is that the finished work of Jesus, what God has done for us in Christ, the finished work of Jesus is the foundation for Christian obedience. That is the title of the sermon this morning, Foundation of Christian Obedience. Without proper head knowledge of the work of Christ, and without proper heart affection for the work of Christ, we will forever be in a trap of insecure moral performance forever it doesn't mean we'll not be saved it doesn't mean the promises of God are not for us who are in Christ but there are categories of Christians who are converted they are born again but they do not have proper head and heart knowledge of the work of Jesus therefore their obedience to God is off it's on the wrong foundation it's growing from the improper soil and so today, we're going to look at that foundation. What is the foundation for me to obey God? 
Why am I obeying? Many people have never felt the joy of doing the right thing for the right reasons. They've just never felt the joy of that. So there's many people who try to do the right thing, but it's coming from an improper motive. And today we want to tie tie together the two. We want to make sure that we're doing the right thing for the right reasons. And when that comes together, the right motive and the right action, there's great joy in Christian obedience. We don't want our obedience simply to be out out of performance or trying to do better. We want there to be joy in our obedience to God. And when those two things, two things come together, that creates joy in us. And Paul, as he regularly does, is going to connect the dots for us. He's going to connect them and put them together, and he's going to show us how the work of Christ empowers Christian obedience. And what we see in Jesus, we see that he is our example of Christian obedience. So Paul's going to lay out, here's how you do it, just like Christ did. And so we want to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. So Jesus is our example. But when we see Jesus as our example, what we're going to see today is that Jesus did that as our perfect substitute. And if we see him as our perfect substitute, we can properly see him as our example. If we only see Jesus as our example, we'll never have Christian hope. We'll never understand what Christian obedience truly is. We'll only just see Jesus as our perfect obedience and perfect example. And we'll never understand the truth of the gospel. So we have to see both. So we're going to see Jesus as our example and Jesus as our Savior today. Look at verse 1 in chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The first thing we have to know, it's just so clear as you read it in your Bibles, and, and, and men, challenge you to have your Bible open, family, be gathered around the scriptures as I'm preaching here, and you can look together at the words of God. The strong Christian has an obligation from God to bear with the failings of the weak. Now remember, there is such a thing as strong and weak Christians. Now all of us, from the strongest Christian to the weakest Christian, are all equally justified. We are all equally justified in the sight of God. So there isn't uh, you know, A-league justification and B-league justification. This is not the difference between... Justification is not the difference between the strong and the weak Christian. But there is something in the scriptures that it's plain and that's clear, is there is a difference when it comes to sanctification or when it comes to spiritual growth. There are immature Christian believers and mature Christian believers. There are fathers in the faith and there are children in the faith. There are mothers in the faith and there are children in the faith. In 1 John, we notice this progression from men to young men to children that are in the context of the, of the, of the Christian family And it's just clear all through the scriptures that there are those who are further along in sanctification and not as far along in Christian Christian sanctification. There are adult Christians and baby Christians. And to the strong Christian, Paul appeals. He's been talking about this for a chapter and a half. He appeals to the strong and he says, you, Christian, the strong Christian, you have an obligation to bear with or put up with the failings of the weak and not to please yourself. Strong Christians, in other words, are to set the pace. We are to set the pace. We are to lead the way and not having to get our way. A strong Christian doesn't have to get what they want. A strong Christian doesn't pout if they don't get their way in the family of faith. Strong Christians, 
get to look at weak believers and instead of judging them, love them and care for them. A strong Christian doesn't have to have their preferences met. And, and unfortunately, in churches all across our country, and, and I've, been, I've, I've fallen into this sin, I think because I've been a Christian for a long time or because I'm a pastor, I should have all my preferences met in the, in the context of the local church. But if I'm to be strong and walk in Christian obedience and Christian strength, then that means that there's going to be things that happen even at Christ Church Carbondale within our midst that I, I just don't get my way. And I, I, I gladly get to, I gladly get to put my preferences to the side and not get my way. I don't have to please myself. And for those, for parents out there, if parents and kids are listening in, parents, we get the great obligation of bearing with the weaknesses of our children. Bearing with the weaknesses of those who are early in the Christian faith. A strong believer doesn't have to put up with, doesn't have to please themselves, and they, got the, they have the great privilege of God saying to them, deal with the consequences, bail, bear with the failings of the weak. The strong Christian doesn't have to feel entitled. If you've been walking with the Lord 30, 40, 50 years, you're not entitled to anything. If you've been a Christian however long, the longest Christian, we, we should honor those who have been walking with the Lord for many, many years. We should look to them as fathers and mothers. But fathers and mothers in the, fa in the faith don't stomp their feet to get their way, and they don't pout. They know how to bear or put up with the weak and lay down their preferences. And then the strong are commanded or commissioned to do other things as well. Look at verse 2. Let each of us... Please, and the us is the strong Christian, so you can connect the word us to the we who are strong in verse 1. Let, us who are, let each one of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We have a commission. The strong Christians are pleased and commissioned to build up his neighbor and not tear down his neighbor. Now, I've seen it often where... We're older, and I've, I've experienced this. I've experienced this personally. We're older believers who felt entitled, have sought to embarrass me to feel better about themselves. In a context of believers, I personally have tried to show myself smarter than I am or to show myself to know more than I do so I can impress a group of people around me. But what ends up happening is the group of people around me end up feeling shame or feeling like, feeling like they, they don't know as much. And so I'm not considering in those moments my brothers how to build them up. There's a quote that I've really appreciated over the years and it says this from an author I, I really enjoy. He says this, A strong Christian speaks words that are offered in the right measure at the right time to the right person. He will not trouble you with things you do not need to know, nor burden you with things that are not yet yours to bear, nor embarrass you with exposure for shortcomings you are not yet ready to overcome. Even though he sees all of that, he's wise and compassionate. Godly men and women, godly men and women, do not take pride in exposing the weaknesses of others. Godly men and women do not take pride in exposing the weaknesses, weaknesses of others. We want to build others up. 
not expose their weaknesses. We don't want to exhaust the weak Christian with all of their blind spots. You know, as you've been walking with the Lord for several years, you begin to look at, at people's lives and you realize, you know, there, there's some things in their lives that could be done better. And you want to be wise in how you counsel and disciple other people. And as you're working with people, and as you're discipling younger people, or even older people, as you're working with them, you start to realize some things in their life that they may not see right now. And you see blind spots. You know, we see this even in marriage. We see each other's blind spots. And we see this in our children as well. And if we were to expose all of those blind spots to the, to the people that we see them in, all at once, it would be too much for those people to bear. It would be too much for me to bear. To bear. And so wisdom... Wisdom recognizes the right time and the right moment and the right measure to say, hey, listen, there's some things that I've been able to observe, and I want to admonish you. I see the work of God in your life. I see him uh, doing a great work, and I'm I'm really wanting to point this out because I I want you to grow. And as we begin to expose those things, the failings of the weak, what we don't want to is, is, is bring a mallet and a hammer and bring all the shortcomings at once and just kind of hammer and mallet the heads of weak believers all at once. Godly people know the difference between helping and hurting, between admonishing and condemning. We don't want to exhaust the weak with their blind spots. Notice, now, this has nothing to do with age. You know, there's this weird thing in the scriptures where, you know, with, uh, we want to honor all the people who have been walked this road before us. In fact, uh, Paul tells Timothy in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but admonish him as you would a father. We're not to rebuke. We're to honor age, and younger men and women need to do that. But strong and weak believers come with all ages, and all shapes for that matter. <laughs> ages and uh, both men and women. And I want you to, for a moment, think about uh, a couple places in the scriptures that, that really challenge us to know that there are really wise younger people and there are really wise older people and there are really foolish young people and there are really foolish older people. And I want to challenge both uh, to, to really walk in wisdom and to really seek wisdom, to not just equate getting older with getting wiser. And for the older people who are listening in, this is a real challenge because as we get older, we start to see some things we didn't earlier. And we want to make sure that we're growing not just in knowledge and not just in, in what we call wisdom. We want to make sure we're, we're growing in humility as well. Because knowledge without humility is a really dangerous thing. But when we think about the book of Job, I think about Job's friends. And it was the younger man, Elihu, who came along and corrected the older friends who were speaking to Job. And it was God who corrected, not Elihu, God corrected the other friends and not Elihu. Elihu, the young man, spoke wisdom. We see the old men in, in uh, the story of Rehoboam. If you remember, after Solomon died, Rehoboam became king. And Rehoboam went to the counselors and the, the wise men of, 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 of uh, uh, Solomon and ask, you know, how, how am I supposed to lead? And they told him, hey, listen, you don't need to break the backs of the people who worked for your father. They worked for your father very, very hard. And Rehoboam then took counsel from the young men, and the young men said, no, you need to let them know that you're twice the man that your dad, dad was. And you need to work them hard and let them know who's boss. Well, Rehoboam went with the wisdom of the young man, and it, it proved to be folly. wasn't wise at all. And he rejected the wisdom of the older men. And if we think about this, in the Bible, we see case studies all over the place 
of young men who have wisdom and old men who have folly, or of old men who have wisdom and young men who have folly. And so when we think about strong and weak, this is not something that's just a closed door to younger people. Younger people, if you're by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're willing to walk in repentance and humility, if you're willing to take up this book and say, God, what you say goes, not what I say, not what I think or feel, you can walk in wisdom. And older people, if you're not willing to do that, you will walk in folly and you will not walk in wisdom. If this is your authority, the older you get, over this... You will be a fool. And that goes for people of all ages. For men and women alike. But if young men or old men, young women and old women, if you will pick up this book, you will walk in wisdom. And you will know how to deal with those who are weaker than you because we are instructed in the word on how to do so. So if you're not, I don't want to confuse this. If you're not young, if you're not old, we do not want to confuse old age with godliness nor confuse young age with weakness. We want to all pursue together strong Christianity. Strong, muscular Christianity that says, whatever you say, God, I'm going to go there. I'm going to do it. What you say goes. And if we're not, and if we're not amazed, young or old, On our website, if you go to ChristChurchCarbondale.org, and if you just look at that, there's a Martin Lloyd-Jones quote, and it says, The measure of our spirituality is how much we are in awe of the grace of God. And it's said more eloquently. You can look at that on our website. But if we do not stand in awe at the grace of God, we are not going to be able to translate Christian obedience or caring for the weak into everyday life. If we don't know God's grace, we will continue... We will continue to be critical of those who don't have life together as much as we do. We will continue, instead of bearing with the failings of the weak, instead of that, if we don't know God's grace, we will not be a gracious community to the weak. We will be a condemning community to the weak. We have to understand the grace of God, or we'll become an old bully or a young, arrogant person who nobody wants to be around. Instead, the strong believer, young and old, build each other up, And we defer, we defer getting our way. We don't have to get our way. Even if we might know things better, even if we might know what's best, we don't have to get our way unless it's an area of sin and disobedience. And all of this, the foundation of all of this, like this example that's setting here before us today is the example of Jesus. I want you to look at verse 3. For Christ Jesus, for Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell fell on me. Now this passage is really profound. And it's profound in in two massive ways. The first way is that Paul just calls our attention to Jesus. And he gives Jesus as our example. You see it? Look in your Bibles. If you need to pause on here, you can pause and discuss this at home. For Christ did not please Himself. So there's the example. We don't have to please ourselves because Christ did not please Himself. And that's the example that we are to follow. We don't have to get our way because Christ Jesus did not please Himself. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant. And He obeyed His Heavenly Father even to the point of death. He did not have to. He did not have to please Himself. So there's our example. We are to live like Jesus as Christians. That's our example. We're to live like Jesus. That's, that's, we look at the pages of Scripture. We see His character. We see His humility. We see His strength. We see His power. We see His compassion. 
We see his ability to walk in solitude when all the people need him and are clamoring for him and asking him, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Jesus is okay with not meeting everyone's needs. That's fascinating. And yet, he was willing to meet the needs that were presented before him. He was okay in crowds and he was okay with groups of three. He could be by himself. He could be with Pharisees and feel comfortable. He could be with prostitutes and not think wrong thoughts. He could love them in an appropriate way. He could be with young and old people. And we see Jesus and we just marvel that He was perfect as His Heavenly Father was perfect. We marvel at the fact that He was able to start fights and stop fights. And in this instance, we're told that the way we're supposed, in Christian community, the way we're supposed to model His life is not having to please ourselves. Now, when we come to gather on a, on a Sunday morning, how often do we walk out of a church building and we think, like, okay, there are certain things today that weren't my preference? Or walk out of a small group or a discipleship meeting where I wish I, things would have went different this day or that day? Or we do some sort of service event or we do some sort of, like, deal where we come together and we take care of this building and we clean this building or, or just something doesn't go our way in Christian community. And how easy is it for us to pout? Well, the command is, the example given to us is, we don't have to please ourselves. We're okay with deferring, at least we should be. But in this, it's so profound because it doesn't just give Jesus as our example, like morally, just our moral example. I want you to get this. This is so amazing. He quotes from Psalm 69, verse 9, and he appeals to the death of Jesus as our substitute. So we have Jesus as our example and Jesus as our Savior. And this is what I'm going to plead with you. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to hear really carefully here. And if you do know Jesus, I, I just want you to stare at awe and wonder at the work of Christ. If you don't, don't know Christ, here's the deal. Jesus said stuff like this, and so I'm okay with saying it because I want to walk in the footsteps of my Master. If you do not repent of your sins, and if you don't see the beauty of this before you die, you will perish. And you will not be with God forever. You will, not, you will be separated from Him, and it will not be good. It will be torment. It will not be good. The wrath of God you will experience the rest of your life. But if you see the beauty of this, because of your sins, but if you see the beauty of this, of what Jesus did for you, your life can be forever changed. Look at it with me. For Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a messianic psalm, a quote from Psalm 69, as I stated before. It's remarkable. Jesus is not only our great example that we pattern our life around. He was our substitutionary sacrifice. He died in our place. The reproaches of those who reproached God the Father fell on Jesus. I think about this reproach, the word reproach, and this has added a layer for me of understanding to the gospel of Jesus. I studied this week. We know that Jesus died in our place for our sins, and we often think about explicit sins. We think about, think about vile sins, or we think about things in our mind, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the running and doing the things the way of the world, the way of the enemy. We think about that, but when we think about this word reproach, it's interesting. The meaning is layered. But there are several things that fit into the category of reproach. So if reproach is the category, there's the word. Underneath that, okay, there's, there's some sub-points here. Consider this. Reproaches are those who mock God and stick up their nose 
to him. Those who mock God and stick up their nose to him. If you are a God mocker, Jesus died for people just like you. He took on the sins of people who actually mocked his heavenly father. And he loved his heavenly father. He obeyed his heavenly father. He cherished the words of his heavenly father. Those who are ashamed or embarrassed about God's word, you are a mocker and you are a reproacher of God. And Jesus came to die in the place and to take on the reproaches of those who are reproaching God. Those who are ashamed and embarrassed of God's word. Those who think, I know better than God. Those who say, after the reading of God's word or after a Bible verse presented to them, that's not the God I know. If that's the God of this universe, well, I don't want to follow that God. You know how evil that is to say something like that? It is so wicked to look at the pages of Scripture and say, well, if that's what God's like, I don't want a God like that. That's the only God that exists. And He is kind and compassionate. And just because you don't understand His wrath or don't understand His judgment doesn't make you judge and jury of God. And your reproaches, your attitude, your pride and arrogance, not just in your mind and your heart, deserves the wrath of God. Those who say after the Scriptures in an arrogant attitude or those who look at this situation with the COVID-19 and say, well, if I was God, I would do better than Him. Where is your God now? Or those who question in their mind and their heart, God, why don't you do something as if He's obligated in any way to do anything? And as I stated last week, and I want to state it again, why aren't we standing in awe Praising God that He's letting 99 out of 100 people who get this thing live. Why are we not more shocked about that? That's awe-inspiring that God would be so kind to an evil humanity to let so many people live. And to delay His wrath, delay His judgment. The attitude of indifference about God or angry words directed at God, these are reproaches The reproaches of men. And what did Jesus do for those who reproached His heavenly Father? Those who killed Him and spit in His face. Those who mocked Him. Because Jesus is the one who honored God and cherished His Word. As those who reproached God dishonored God and did not cherish His Word. Jesus is the one who loved God with all of His heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is the one who took responsibility for all these reproaches. He was counted as the one who mocked God and struck Him on His nose. And stuck his nose at, up at God's word. He was counted as one who was ashamed of God's word. He was counted as one who after the reading of the Bible says, well, that's not the God I know. He was counted as one who had an arrogant attitude thinking, I know better. He was counted as one who had an indifference about God and did not care. The one who cherished God and loved God was counted as one who had an angry attitude towards God. And the reproaches of those who reproached God the Father fell on Jesus and He did it willingly and He did it for you. This is astounding, friends. Jesus really did die in your place as a substitute. He died in the place of real sinners. He is not just our example This truth is the foundation of everything we're talking about. Of every command in the New Testament. When we hear a command, when we hear love one another or put up with the weak, 
We are to do that out of gratitude because we know in our head and our heart, rightly, we know in our head and our heart what Jesus did for us. The reproaches that I, that, that went from my head and heart to God, Jesus died for those. And that's astounding. It's unbelievable. Astonishing. And after quoting Psalm 69, he tells us why he did it. Because those things written of old in the Old Testament were written for a reason. And we find out in John chapter 5 that everything in the Old Testament was about Jesus. We find out in Luke 24 the same thing. That everything from the law and Moses and to the Psalms and to the prophets, it's all about Jesus. Every bit of it. And so he quotes from Psalm 69. Read again with me. The reproaches of those who fell upon you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So it's written for our instruction. It's written that we might have hope. Friends, the Old Testament is full of hope because it's full of Jesus. And when we get into the pages of the Old Testament, it is for us and it is good. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Andy Andy Stanley infamously said a couple months or a couple years ago that we are to unhitch the Old Testament from the New To do that is to miss so much treasure and so much joy and so much hope in seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Page after page, Christ is there. He is the point. And we're to read it to be instructed, not just on what we are to do, but be instructed on what Christ has done. Every law that we read in the Old Testament, there's a nugget there for us to see that Jesus fulfilled that law. He obeyed that law. Every festival, everything we see that's a type and a shadow, when we look at it, we see Christ fulfilling it. And so we can go and find our hope in the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament because we know the true Day of Atonement in the New. It encourages us. It says that the Old Testament written down for us does three things for us. That we are encouraged, that we can, that we can endure, we are encouraged, and we can have hope. Let's look first at endurance. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The Old Testament, the pages of the Scripture, help us endure. The Old Testament shows us the grand purposes of God over time. You know, we, it's really easy for us to get trapped in the moment. Especially as time is standing still, as we're under house arrest. If you're watching and you're out of state, you've you got, you got a little bit more freedom than we do here in Illinois. Illinois just takes chains and changes, changes to our homes. And we're in our homes and you know, we're getting out and we're doing some walks. And I just found out, get this, that the state of Illinois said that we cannot hunt for turkey on state-owned property. Because there's so much coronavirus out there as we're going turkey hunting. Anyways, that's just, I'm sorry. Some of my bias about all this is coming out now. Please forgive me. Grace, grace, let's give grace. Um, so we are in house arrest, and time for so many people, and for, for others, you're, you're going to work, and you're working from home, and not like as I am, and I'm still meeting with some people, but time is kind of standing still for the whole world right now, it seems. You know, the best thing we're producing right now is all the funny memes that are out there. I mean, there's some really crazy and creative memes out there. I love the one of Chris Farley being introduced on uh, I believe it's the, uh, the old talk show before Jay Leno. Who was it before Jay? John, uh, Johnny Carson. And uh, the, the meme at the top is what church is going to be like the first week back. And it's Chris Farley entering in and he's just going nuts. And it's great. Just Google that. It's worth your time. Um, and so we're, we're getting, we have some creative things. But time seems to be standing still. And what we, what we see in the Old Testament is that we, we kind of get pulled out of the moment. And we get to see the big picture. Okay, o- That over time... Centuries, okay, millennia, we see God is at work. 
we see things like the book of Habakkuk. In the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk, the prophet, is talking with God and he's, he's asking God, God, why are you letting a nation that's wicked like Babylon, why are you letting them come in? Why are you letting them judge us? Like We're, we're, a, we're a nation more righteous than they. And his question is about God. It, God, it seems like you're sitting on your hands and doing nothing. And God responds. And we see, when we look at the book of Judges, or when we look at God bringing His people into Egypt for 400 years, or God bringing His people into exile for 70 years and then bringing them back out, when we look at the Old Testament, we're, we're encouraged to endure. Hey, God's at work. And it may feel like in this moment that God's abandoned Himself, or He's just kind of ambivalent to everything that's going on, or He's twiddling His thumbs, or maybe the God of deism is right. Maybe God's not really doing anything. Or maybe dualism is right, and Satan has His purposes, and God has His, and they're just duking it out. And sometimes God, you know, Satan gets the upper hand, and we're tempted to think such foolish things. We look at the Old Testament, and we see, my goodness, God is at work. He knows what He's doing. His purposes are sure. He's got this. I can endure. But we also were encouraged. It encourages us. It encourages us. When we look at God's purposes through the millennia, through history and into the future, when we think about being discouraged. If you're discouraged, if you're disheartened during this time, I, I want to... Sometimes the Sunday school answer, it really is the best answer. Here, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Here's like the, the big thing. If you're discouraged and you have a bunch of extra time on your hands right now, here, here you go. Here's the, the big thing. Read your Bible. Hear from God. There's clamoring. There's clutter. There's media. There's pundits, talking heads everywhere. We're hearing a lot of words through the internet. Read your Bible. When we read the Bible, we get encouraged because we see how big and awesome God is. We see these themes that are all through the scriptures about human frailty and sin, or better order here, human sin and frailty. And then we look up and we look around us and we see how frail and sinful humanity still is. And modern people are always tempted to think that, well, the things in the Bible, they were good for those people back then, but not for us. But then, in a matter of one month, two months, three months, the whole world gets shut down from one virus. And we realize we're not as strong as we thought we were. We're not as powerful as we thought we were. We are frail. When we're in the pages of the Bible... We get encouragement because we see God at work in our lives and in the lives of the world. And if you're not in God's world daily, if you're not in God's word daily, there's really no excuse for it. You say, well, I don't have time. We have time for everything else. We all have the same amount of time in the day. We can get in God's word and our world and our way of thinking can be shaped by God's word. And if we have our page that knows in the pages of the Bible... And we just read and we're, we're in tune to the culture of the Bible. We're able to look up and be encouraged by this and then look up and see how messed up everything is. We're able to look up and see, oh my goodness, people need Jesus. People need to hear from God. We get in the Word and we're encouraged. And all of this brings us to hope. Uh, hope is an interesting thing. Um, apart from future certainty... Future certainty, which is what we have as Christians. We have future certainty. 
The kingdom of God is growing and it's going to continue to expand. God is at work. In this world, no matter what end times view you take, this world will be, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The nations will be discipled. Kings throughout this world will bow a knee sooner or later and declare that Jesus is king. Jesus is the king of this world. It's an interesting thing. Apart from future certainty, let me ask you this, especially if you're a non-believer out there. Apart from future certainty, where's your hope? What is hope for that matter? What is hope? Apart from future certainty, it seems to be that nihilism is the logical outcome. It's, it's atheism thought through. If we don't have a worldview, if we have an atheistic or agnostic worldview, what is there to hope for? But for the Christian, for the Christian, we know that God is working all things to the counsel of His will, even when we don't understand that. And we can have hope in Christ knowing that we have future promises that we are heading towards. We know we're going there. We're walking that way. And we're going to walk right there through the COVID thing. We're going to walk right there through anything that comes in our family's life and our business life. Through anything that comes through my life. We're walking toward the promises of God. And they are mine for me. And that brings hope. God's word gives us all of this. In Christ we have hope. And then Paul after reminding us of all this stuff, begins to pray for the church at Rome. And this prayer is applicable to us. He begins to pray, and it's just one little prayer. Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Paul prays for them. Paul, there's two prayers in the book of Ephesians for the people of God to understand. In chapter 1, he prays for them that they would have the strength to comprehend um, the glories of the gospel of Jesus. And in chapter 3, one of Brett's favorite passages, he prays a similar prayer, asking them for not, the, not just them to know the love of God, but to experience the love of God. A love that surpasses knowledge. The, the glories of Jesus to be felt, not just known cognitively. Paul prays here a very poignant and clear prayer after saying that in the scriptures we get endurance, encouragement, and hope, he tells them through prayer that God is the God of encouragement. That he's the God of endurance. And he will grant you to live in harmony with one another. In other words, we need to get in the word. We need to live in harmony with one another. But we need to know that God is the one we are dependent upon. He uses the word grant. Grant. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. Grant you. To live in harmony with one another. We cannot live in harmony with one another in our own strength. Just like so many other things in the Christian life. We can't do things on our own. We need God's help continually and daily. We can kind of narrow that down. Not con just conti like continually down to the very millisecond and daily, and weekly, and monthly, and yearly, and decadely. New word, made it up. 
God is the God who does this. We are dependent upon God. And that's why Paul prays for the church at Rome. For God to do what only God can do. And Paul's understanding of Christian obedience here, if they're going to endure, if they're going to get in the Word, if they're going to live in harmony with one another, his understanding of Christian obedience is that we are always in need of God to grant us power to obey. We sing a song. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. You know the song? It's true. It is singing truth like in verse 5 that we need God. We're going to do our part and we're going to live this Christian life and we're going to ask for God's help, but we're going to depend on God to come through for us in ways that we know we can't come through for ourselves. God is at work in us. The strength to follow His commands, the strength to endure and to be encouraged and to live in harmony comes and has to come from God. And the Holy Spirit is at work in us doing this. Rome, for harmony to happen between Jew and Roman, Jew and Gentile, with all the racial discord and ethnic discord that had been there for so long, you can kind of jump from that point to what we see in our world today. For that to happen, for racial harmony to happen, for ethnic harmony and religious people from different religious backgrounds, for harmony to happen, that's going to have to be a work of God. And this all is in accordance with Jesus Christ. For those who had different opinions on food and drink and different opinions on days of the week, and those who are weak and those who are strong, it's going to require God to bring us in, to rally us around something. More importantly, around someone. All of this is about the work of Christ. We see at the end of his prayer, he ends it with, in accordance with Jesus Christ. Kind of the middle part, not quite the end. In accordance with Jesus Christ. Jesus binds People with differences together. We are bound together by His very blood. And this is the hope of a Christian community in a local church, in in churches throughout a city, wherever it may be, we are bound together through the work of Jesus. When you get with another believer and you begin to talk, you find out you have some differences, okay? Yep. You start talking about Jesus. The real Jesus and the real gospel. And notice how much unity you will have. You find me a young man and and an older man who have differences, but both love the gospel of God's grace. You put them in a room together, and in a matter of moments, you're going to have Dan Malure and you're going to have Ryan Deaton, probably in tears, talking about God's grace. You see an older woman and a younger woman together, talking about God's grace, and you're going to see two women, even though they may have differences, glorying in Jesus. Now, if a community claims Jesus, they are called to be committed to harmony around Jesus. And it's all for a point. Look at verse 6. It's all for a point. It all is culminating in something here. Unity in a local body is for the glory of God. It's through Christ Jesus for a purpose. Through Jesus to God's glory. Unity happens through Jesus for God's glory. Look at verse 6. That together you may be with one voice glorify, with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for God's glory. That's why 
We can lift up a united voice because of Jesus. We lift it up to the glory of God. We want God to be honored. We sing about Jesus, we're united. Issues go away when you're worshiping with believers who love the gospel of Jesus. When we hear about Jesus, we're thankful together. That racial harmony happens when we're in a room together singing about Jesus, behold the throne of God above. When we sing a song like that, unity happens. And we're together thinking about the glory of God. I mean, imagine singing in Christ alone. You know, I love in our church when we're here, and this is one of the things I missed. Like a few weeks ago, we sang in Christ alone. And uh, when the resurrection part happens in Christ alone. I mean, it's usually Casey, Claude, you know, George is here in the back. It's usually Casey, you know, she's got that hoorah that goes on. I love it. But our people are clapping their hands, you know, Lito's doing his, his all hail to the king thing, and we're just celebrating, woo Jesus is alive. When we're rallied around Jesus, our hearts and our minds are aligned thinking about how glorious God is. God, thank you for your glory. Thank you. You are worthy to be worshipped. And the differences we may have in food and drink, Days, how we approach the coronavirus, they go away because we're worshiping him together. It's an amazing thing. Harmony around the gospel of Jesus. Therefore, therefore, in verse 7, look at this. Therefore, welcome one another. Welcome, come on. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In your sin and rebellion, how did God welcome you? How did, how did this, I like interacting. Brent, how did God welcome you in your sin and rebellion? Did he welcome you in? Graciously. Okay, George, how did Jesus welcome you in and your sin and rebellion and your reproaches? Open arms. Open arms. Andy, how did, how did Jesus welcome you in through your sin and reproaches? Unconditionally. Welcome to me. Welcome to sin. That's how he welcomed me in. He welcomed me in through my sin and rebellion. Come. Come. My burden is, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come, welcome. God's grace did not come to any of us because of something in us. This is so crucial. God's grace did not come to us because of something in us. Jesus did not welcome us because we merited it. He welcomed us in spite of our sin, rebellion, and reproaches. He welcomed us in while we were reproaching the God that He loved. Welcomed us in. And the example that's laid before us, hey Ransom, the example that's laid before us is that we would welcome brothers and sisters in like that. That we would welcome the watching world in. Welcome, hey come, come, there's room here. If you're watching, you don't know Jesus, there's room at the feet of Jesus. There's room at the foot of the cross Come, we want to welcome you in. You don't have to clean yourself up. Right now in your sin and and your rebellion, repent of your sins and come to Jesus. Come to Him. You're welcomed. And the Bible tells us, God tells us, welcome each other as Christ Jesus welcomed you. That's how. Welcome each other as Christ Jesus welcomed you. Welcome each other. The gospel of Jesus is the foundation for healthy Christian fellowship We do all this for the glory of God. It's the desire of every believer that God would be glorified. The gospel of Jesus, when rightly understood in the head and in the heart, drives us to the glory of God together. We are gospel-centered because we're God-centered. 
We are gospel-centered because we're God-centered. When we know that the gospel of Jesus in our head and heart, we know how Christ has welcomed us, we become God-centered. We want to glorify and honor God. That's what we want. That's what every believer, when you, when you rightly understand the gospel of Jesus, desires with every ounce of, of, in their being. They want God to be honored because he's so kind. He welcomed me. I want him to be known. That's why we exist, after all. Every great Christian creed says it the same. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But here's the deal. There are false Christs and there are false gospels. And there are false Christs and false gospels that sound right. That are absolute lies from the enemy. I want you to consider this. Believer and non-Christian alike. There are many today that want to make the, Christ, the, the cross of Christ about you. They want to make the cross of Christ the supreme point in the history of the universe for us to see how valuable we are. And for those people, there are godly men and women who are preaching this false gospel, even, who don't even know it's false. They just get a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. They turn the gospel into the great statement about human worth. They say, well, look at our value. Look how amazing we are. Just look at the cross. Look how valuable we are that Christ would die for us. And if you think the cross is about your value, believer, please hear me, there's so much about the cross you don't understand. And if you did understand this, if you understand this rightly in your head and your heart, it will blow you away. The lesser view of the cross that you're viewing right now, that you're seeing and thinking about right now, will be squashed and you will find so much joy and power at the cross. If you understand it rightly. If you think the cross is about your value, Christian community, there's consequences to that false gospel. If you think the cross is like, hey, everybody look and see how valuable you are by looking to the cross. Look, Jesus did this for you. You're amazing. You're beautiful. If you just saw what God saw, then you would see how amazing you are. When the gospel is preached like that, it creates a self-centered and demeaning and demanding community of people who are functional or dysfunctional narcissists. They think God is the final stamp of approval on their narcissism. The cross is not about how amazing humanity is. It's not about our value. It's not about our worth. Although we are inherently valuable and we are worth something. Being created in the image of God. The cross of Christ, hear me say this, is about the value of Jesus. It's about the preciousness of Jesus. And friends, as we're here, like kids listening in and dad and mom, and grandma and grandpa, whoever. You have to see how ugly your sin is. You, you, you've got to look to the cross and see what you deserved. Like, if you don't see, if you look to the cross, you look and see the value of Jesus, we see what our life has merited. Like, the cross shows us, there's what my life has earned. Right there, that, that ugly, gruesome cross where Jesus died brutally. Where the wrath of God came down, that's what my life is merited. Why would Jesus die for me if I earned that? And friends, there you're starting to understand the love of God. The love of God isn't that we were beautiful and Jesus came to rescue uh, uh, the beautiful humanity. The amazing, that's understandable, friends. That's understandable. If we were so worthy of God's salvation, if we were so worthy of love and so beautiful, well, then the cross is just, duh, that just makes sense. 
But if the Bible is true that we have sinned against a holy God and His wrath is upon us, then the cross is so much more powerful to us because we see, I deserve that and Jesus came for me? How amazing is that? I didn't deserve it. I didn't merit it. I didn't earn it. I reproached God and Jesus came to take responsibility for my sin? Yes. And if you understand the cross rightly in your head and your heart, that everything is about Jesus, then you will finally be about, to greater and greater degrees over the rest of your life, we will become a community of people that welcomes each other as Christ has welcomed us, and we will do it all for the glory of God. We will be a people that is not, we're not about our glory. We're not about our recognition and getting our way. We want God to be honored. And if you're not a believer out there, we want you to be saved, not simply that you would be saved. We care about God more than we care about you. And that's why we want you to be saved. We love you and we want you to know Jesus so you will honor Him. He is worthy of worship. Repent today. And in this truth, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we find the foundation for all Christian love and all Christian obedience. We love each other because God has loved us in Christ when we did not deserve it. We do not have to wait for anyone to warrant or earn our love. We gladly give it because of what Christ has done for us. And if we understand that, it changes everything. Non-Christian, if you're here, last appeal to you. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. Jesus said when the Tower of Shalom fell in Luke, in the book of Luke, I believe chapter 9 or 11, 9 through 12, one of those chapters, Tower fell, and Jesus used this example of their death to say, huh, you think that they were more wicked? We could talk about the coronavirus, everybody who died. You think that somehow they were the wicked ones? Here's the deal. Unless you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Death, it, wages of sin is death. And use this time to get right with the Lord. To repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus today. I pray and plead with you and I'm asking God that he would grant that into you. Into your house right now and to wherever you're watching this right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. I pray for everyone that's listening.